Welcome to the Cannabis Review, another episode. Thanks to all the viewers of the last previous episodes. Your uh, views are much appreciated. We've got a great show for you today. I know a lot of people saw the news about New Zealand in the press over the last couple of weeks. So we've got one of the experts from New Zealand to join us here, none other than Manu Kadi. How you doing, Manu? You well? Very good. Very good. Thank you. So for those of you who don't know Manu, he is the co-founder of Ruo Bioscience, which is a globally respected company based in New Zealand, recently listed on the New Zealand Exchange, and they are one of the top pioneers in the country. I'll let Manu give you a little bit of an overview of exactly what it is Ruo Bioscience do. Cool, yeah. We started in 2016, uh, myself and my other co-founder. We live in a very rural part of New Zealand, uh, a village of about 800 people. That's about two hours drive from the closest town, it's about 30,000 people, um, right on the east coast of the North Island. And so high unemployment, a lot of people moved away over the last sort of 40 odd years. And we were looking at job opportunities and economic development opportunities for our community. Uh, started looking at some of our native plants and bioactive extracts that we could get from that and turning it into natural health products. Uh, someone asked us if we thought about growing hemp and um, when they suggested that, we thought that's a good idea. There's a lot of uh, illicit cannabis grown in our region that supplies the rest of the country because we're so isolated. It's fairly easy to um, hide your crop and um, the every sort of uh, season there's uh, helicopters from the police that fly over and, and raid the illicit crops, but um, most of them survive. And um, so there's a lot of expertise and has been for many generations, I guess, sort of last, um, yeah, some of them into the third generation of growers. Um, and so we got into that then and uh, we, I guess we could see the way that the, the global market was shifting and, and opening up as well as within New Zealand, the regulations, particularly around medicinal cannabis, were liberalising and so we saw an opportunity there and given the expertise and the community and the land available and things, we thought we'd get into it. Um, so we had a charitable company at the time that was um, you know, all around community um, development and uh, got some private investors to come in. We also had a crowdfund um, with our community. We raised a couple of million dollars in 2018 over a week. Um, we we'd sort of told the community what we were going to do and just, yeah, people really got behind us in the region, um, which was great. And um, from that, we were able to yeah, attract other um, private investment. And so we've been very focused on pharmaceutical cannabis. Um, that's been the only uh, option in New Zealand. Uh, so we've had the referendum uh, in the, just in the last uh, month. But up until now, it's only been pharmaceutical grade. And it's GMP, which is this, uh, you know, any medicine uh, that you get a, as a prescription should be GMP, um, regardless of uh, the condition or, or what, what the product is. Uh, and so New Zealand set GMP as the, the standard for cannabis, uh, medicinal cannabis, whereas jurisdictions like Canada haven't uh, used GMP as the, the standard. They've had a requirement slightly below that, which has presented some challenges for Canadian companies trying to export. And um, so yeah, we, I was involved in the development of those regulations through uh, 2018, the, the, the law was changed to allow for commercial production. Over 2019, the regulations were developed with the government and I was part of the committee that um, oversaw the development of those regulations. The government had quite a, um, 
an open process uh, around those. It wasn't like the bureaucrats went away and wrote it all and came back. They involved prescribers particularly, as well as um, myself from the industry and um, some researchers and so on. So, uh, and then the, the uh, regulations draft in the draft form went out to the uh, public and there was an opportunity to feedback on those before they were finalised. Um, and so I think we've got pretty good regulations. As I say, the standard is very high which enables us to export to places like the EU um, with that GMP grade uh, being the, the bottom line. Um, so that's the, um, yeah, the, the regulatory environment and, and in April this year that kicked in. Um, and so commercial licenses have been issued since then and we were one of the first companies to, to gain a commercial license up until now. There've only been research licenses and we got the first research license in August, 2018. Um, so I think there's about a dozen uh, licenses that have been granted in New Zealand. There's no cap on those. Um, and most of those are for cultivation. Uh, some of them are for manufacturing as well and for supply. So there's a few companies that import uh, product solely and distribute it to pharmacies. And so, yeah, that's sort of the, the situation. As you said, we, we listed, um, so we're well um, capitalized now and can progress. Uh, we have a distribution deal signed with a German uh, company. Uh, we're very focused on Germany as our first market in addition to New Zealand. Um, and yeah, getting underway for our, our GMP audit, was, which is separate to the cannabis license that happens this late at the end of this month. So our team are working on that. We've got about 25 staff employed by the company um, and they're much more uh, skilled and expert in all areas of, of the uh, operations than I am. I was really just... Uh, one of the initiators and um, yeah, it's great to have such a talented team and um, been able to attract people from around the world. And COVID hasn't had too big a, an impact on us, which has been good. People have been able to carry on. There's a lot of documentation and preparation, obviously, around pharmaceutical production. So um, yeah, we've been able to carry on with that. And now we're out of lockdown and um, able to get into our validation runs and so on. It's, um, yeah, it's all hands on deck. Happy days. A wise investment for the village and the community who, who invested in at the very start. I've no doubt a lot of them are happy people now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were able to see it. People have got two or three times back what they put in in terms of the, the value of their shares now um, that they can trade on the stock exchange. Excellent, excellent. Something you touched on there is probably going to be the first topic that I want to touch on. I know a lot of people are going to be really interested in this. So it's the recent referendum that happened in New Zealand. We saw that it didn't pass. Can you just give us a little overview of how that started, the, mm. the process of putting that into place for a country like Ireland? We're pretty similar to New Zealand in terms of population, a little bit to the right in terms of politics. So how would a country like us, if we were doing it again, how did you guys initially start the whole process? Yeah, I mean, there's been um, cannabis reform campaigners working for decades in New Zealand, you know, at least 20, 30 years. Um, and, uh, and some of our MPs, particularly Green MPs, have really um, promoted that. You know, we had one of the first Rastafarian MPs in the world in the Green Party, uh, Nando Tanchos. And while he was in there, he's out of parliament now, but uh, while he was in there, it was a big uh, issue for him. And... Uh, some of his colleagues in the Green Party picked that up and it became Green Party policy to uh, promote um, legalisation and, and reform of the cannabis um, legislation. So uh, 2017, when uh, the Labour government were, was elected, uh, chosen, so we've got an MMP system and 
at the, the last election it was um 50-50 between the um, Conservative National Party, more right-wing, and the Labour Party. Uh, and the the kingmaker, the New Zealand First Party, a very small party, but it got to choose the balance of power, and um, it, it went with Labour and the Green Party. And so the Greens, as part of their coalition uh, agreement, required that uh, cannabis um, legalisation be on the agenda. And New Zealand First uh, were fairly, they're very conservative, um, and they agreed to a referendum um, being, being the only way that they would support it. So it went to a, a whole uh, country referendum and it coincided with our general election that happened in October, um, which was supposed to happen in September, was delayed a month because of COVID. Um, so yeah, over the last three years, the government uh, prepared a draft bill, um, which was a really good strategy. I think they it wasn't just a yes or no, do you support legalisation? Because who knows what legalisation means? And so by having a draft bill, it was very detailed and people could see all of the thinking and, and exactly what they were voting on. While it would still need to go through the normal uh, select committee process with public submissions to be improved, um, there was a lot of detail in, in that legislation. So I think that was a good strategy uh, for anyone else that was going to use a referendum as a potential mechanism to, to achieve a change. As I understand it, nowhere is actually legalised through referendum. Uh, though I see there's quite a few states in the last uh, 48 hours that have legalised um, because it was on their ballot. Um, but other, yeah, in terms of whole countries, um, no one's used the referendum as a way to, to achieve the, the, the legalisation change. Uh, so today, this afternoon, we find out... Um, the final results and there's a chance that it may still uh, pass. Uh, so the, the final or the interim um, vote suggested uh, came back as 46% uh, supported legalisation and 53% opposed. Uh, there was a uh, number of campaigns in favour of the yes vote and some would say that those campaigns were probably not coordinated enough into a really simple message for voters uh, and we were very facts-based, I think, and perhaps that was a mistake. And the the no campaigns were led, led by um, a religious um, group, uh, lobby, lobby group called Family First, very influenced and supported by North American uh, lobbyists and uh, had very uh, misleading uh, campaign, but very effective in terms of its simplicity. And basically they made up a whole lot of stuff very scaremongering and a lot of people bought into that uh, so unfortunately yeah there was a they were very good um, had a bit of money behind them and the, the on the other hand the the yes campaign while there's a number of companies in the medicinal uh, sector who um, have said that they would be interested in getting into um, recreational or, or providing products under a legal regime um, None of us are, are making money yet, um, or very few, only the importers. No one's into production and sales, so uh, there's, there's a lot of cash burn and a little um, available to, to really back um, the legalisation campaign. There was some talk of the big Canadian companies supporting legalisation here, um, but I'm not aware of um, yeah, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, let alone millions, flowing into the country to support the BS campaign from uh, companies that may have benefited uh, from from that. Of course, under a legal regime, there's no exports. It's purely a domestic um, uh, 
situation and the market and um, that may have had some bearing on the level of interest from overseas companies though profits can always flow back if there was a, a locally owned entity anyway that's the the, the campaign um, and we'll find out this afternoon so basically of the remaining special votes and I think there's um, over a hundred uh, over half a million um, special votes to be counted uh, they would need to have at least 70 percent in favour of legalisation to uh, or 68 percent to get it over the line in terms of the majority uh, so a bit like the states at the moment I guess we we're a pretty divided country on that particular issue it was um, uh, there was also another referendum on um, right to die or euthanasia uh, legislation, which um, was successful. So two thirds of voters supported that, and I wonder whether that had some some bearing on the cannabis referendum. But um, yeah, it's not looking good. We're not optimistic. There's still a chance that it, it will happen, but we'll, yeah, sort of in a few hours we'll know the final result. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of advice for, for others, not convinced that a referendum is the, the best way because uh, you do get, you know, uh, particularly in maybe a country like Ireland with a fairly um, conservative religious community, you, you may find similarly there's a, um, a strong campaign of, you know, scaremongering to uh, put people off. And I guess what we needed to really highlight was, you know, and, and there's some suggestion from the no campaign that there hasn't been enough time gone by in terms of the legalization in Canada but we could have highlighted a lot more the impact that legalizations had in, in Canada and some of the results around particularly youth access and use which they've seen drop by half um, since legalization after two years so um, those kind of statistics while everyone said that they cared about young people and they didn't want access which is why they were voting no if they actually looked at the real evidence uh, it's pretty clear that uh, legalization does provide more control um, and regulation around the, the product rather than having it available uh, through uh, unlicensed, unregulated uh, sources. And um, yeah, so just a lot of disappointment there, I guess. We, we had a, a meeting yesterday with the, the Yes campaigners, and there's certainly uh, a mandate in, in many ways to progress and, and carry on and appetite in the public. Um, consciousness to to see change obviously and even in those who voted no there was a strong um, level of support for decriminalization which again most people didn't understand um, would sort of provide some perverse incentives for continuing to supply unregulated product to you know with no quality control to um, anyone who wants it including young people so um, that may still happen and in the government while the, the first um, interim results came out, the, the Justice Minister who was in charge of the referendum said, we'll take that as a um, as a decision of the people and we'll honour it and we won't make any changes. Uh, there's there's still plenty of room for the, the new government to um, progress the cannabis law reform agenda in different ways. Um, there was another piece of legislation passed last year that directed police where it's in the public interest to uh, to direct uh, people caught with cannabis to health um, services rather than prosecution. And we've seen that applied um, in an uh, uneven, uh, ad hoc kind of way to date. And I think there's some opportunity there to say, actually, uh, anyone found with cannabis should be referred to um, health rather than prosecution. So it becomes a health issue rather than a, a criminal one. Uh, take out that public interest um, discretion 
clause and um, uh, and yeah, get you know, so it's a form of decriminalisation. Uh, and I think the other one that came through strongly, including from those opposed to legalisation, was uh, in the end they admitted that the medicinal cannabis scheme isn't working in the sense that uh, unlike places like Germany where there's a high proportion of health insurance, um, we don't have that and so there's no subsidies for uh, pharmaceutical grade products, which means that those who are sick really can't afford uh, to access the, the medicines that are being produced. And so there's needing to be some review of the, the scheme there and um, looking at, at ways for people to, that are very sick to be able to access their own medicine, which could include growing their own if they had a prescription from a doctor or something like that. So um, I think that'll be the other area that we see progress on if the, the referendum isn't successful, that the government's going to have to do something to improve uh, access for medical patients, which at the moment is prescription only. Okay, yeah, well, fingers crossed now that we have uh, a little bit more action on that and we may even have the 70% needed if mm. <laughs> if all goes to plan. Yeah. I'm going to jump onto a topic now that I know a lot of people are interested in and they don't ever get to really have an expert explain too much about them. That's the genetics of cannabis. Can you mm. just give us a little overview on your view on the genetics of cannabis and anything exciting that you guys are doing within this space? Yeah, well, just a disclaimer, I'm definitely not an expert in cannabis genetics. Um, we do have some experts in the team. Um, and it's one of the uh, the wins that we did get in the medicinal cannabis legislation was uh, the opportunity to bring illicit genetics into the legal uh, regime. And unlike other jurisdictions, we seem to be the only one in the world that doesn't hasn't put a a closure date on that process so many of them will just open it up for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and say whatever you've got at the end of that we're going to lock it off and those will be the genetics that are allowed into the, the legal regime uh, fortunately new zealand um, has said that the um, all we have to do is make a declaration that we have illicit genetics um, in our possession and where there's a there's a limit on that and so we have to every time we want another set of seeds or plants to come into our licensed um, operation we need to declare that um, but it is a, a good opportunity for those who have been growing and breeding in the illicit market to bring their genetics into a, a regulated regime and make some legitimate um, royalties or income from from the sale of those um, or just allow them to be used by by others and we have a few suppliers uh, breeders who just want to free their plants to be utilised in whatever way is, is good for patients. So um, the other person we have involved is a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Plum, who's based in Portland, uh, and his mission in life is really to breed um, both really stable genetics so that you get a really consistent uh, chemical profile every time and yield, um, but also to uh, develop particular chemical uh, characteristics of um, varieties that match with what the medical researchers are saying uh, seem to be efficacious for particular indications and conditions. So there's a lot of time and effort that goes into those processes. Jeremy works closely with Dr. Ethan Russo, who's um, started with who's in GW Pharmaceuticals when they were developing Sativex and Epidiolex. Um, and has done a lot of research on the terpene and cannabinoid profile of different varieties and what they seem to do in terms of treatment for particular uh, indications and conditions. And uh, so I guess that there's um, 
plenty of work that goes in over many, many years into the selective breeding processes. Um, the new technology, obviously, is CRISPR-Cas9, which um, you can do gene editing, so you can identify particular traits that you'd like to have included in a, a plant. We're not involved in that, but I think that's coming. Uh, and there'll be companies that are uh, using gene editing to speed up the process of um, selection that usually happens through um, the, the longer, sort of more traditional breeding process. Um, I've also been talking to... Uh, uh, a gentleman based in the UK who uh, has uh, a large um, germplasm bank of genetics from uh, land race varieties from around the world. Um, and I think there's an opportunity there for uh, the countries and the, the regions where cannabis derives from to participate in this industry instead of it being um, dominated in, in the exclusive domain of North Americans and Europeans and Australasians, I think, you know, in Asia, from uh, China and even Japan, uh, through Thailand, Cambodia, um, Laos, uh, Burma, uh, Nepal, India, through the Middle East and Afghanistan, Pakistan, there's lots of um, genetics in there that haven't been tampered with or um, developed in the same way as those uh, varieties that we see coming out of North America in Europe. Um, and so if we can develop partnerships and relationships with communities uh, that are much um, poorer than most of those in the developed world who are making the big money out of cannabis, uh, we could use some of those genetics uh, and pay royalties to the communities, develop breeding programs there. And, um, and for many of them, there's um, you know, pretty significant penalties still in there countries but places like Thailand are, are liberalizing very quickly around uh, the opportunity in cannabis that's emerged and uh, for many it's um, possible to yeah, develop uh, support with the government uh, and universities and things to develop their own breeding programs and bring those genetics that are perhaps more pure or have particular features that uh, the industry will be looking for into um, the global uh, marketplace uh, for genetics and uh, one of the opportunities we have, I guess, is that there's a lot of knowledge and intelligence in uh, plant science in places like um, New Zealand and um, in Europe that have been applied to many other crops. And um, because of prohibition, they haven't been able to do much with cannabis, but that's changing fairly quickly. And so we're um, confident and, and optimistic and um, excited about the potential of utilising that knowledge in the, the cannabis breeding uh, space as well. So looking forward to uh, getting our scientists in, and they're very keen to, to get involved with, with the sector. Uh, we've got some uh, plant scientists who have been working with hops for many years here and it's a cousin to cannabis. They're super keen to start applying some of their expertise to, to cannabis. So, yeah, again, I'm not an expert, but that's just a general overview, some thoughts on um, cannabis genetics. and. You'd be surprised. That's a, that's a hell of a lot of information, again, for people who don't have as much uh, access to the data as yourself may have. Jeremy Plum sounds like a great man to have on this show and maybe have a deep mm. conversation with. I might ask you to do an introduction to him yeah, and see if yeah. he'd be interested in coming on. I'm yeah. not going to keep you much longer. Just one little thing. I know I'd be killed if I didn't ask somebody like you. Have you got any tips for growing either indoor or outdoor over here or anywhere in the country? Just basically anything simple that most people might not uh, have mm. the idea about. 
Um, not particularly because I'm not an expert uh, grower by any stretch of the imagination. Um, again, we've got those people on, on team. Um, but, yeah, and again, it depends on the context in which you're growing. So we, we've um, grown outdoors and we're growing indoors. We've also got glass house operations getting going. And again, because of the context that we're growing in for pharmaceuticals, we have to uh, try and produce the most consistent uh, chemovars uh, in terms of the cannabinoid profile. So imagine like a, an aspirin or something has to have the same level of um, ibuprofen or whatever in every, um, every pill. Uh, as pharmaceutical cannabis, we have to have, if we're selling flowers to Germany, it has to be within a very narrow um, range of variation, particularly in THC and, and CBD levels. So um, to get that consistency, uh, growing indoors seems to be um, the best option because you can control all of the environmental factors. And if any of those change, cannabis is a very uh, fickle plant and um, you know you just need a little bit more light or a little bit more water or change the nutrients and that can the chemical expression uh, can change dramatically. So having everything standardized for pharmaceutical uh, production is important. Having said that, uh, obviously the cost of indoor growing is massive compared to outdoor production and so we're also uh, very focused on proving that we can produce pharmaceutical cannabis outdoors. It may be that we can only use that and probably will be only be able to use that for extracts, um, you know, oils and tinctures and topicals. Um, but we're very pro, you know, um, very focused and prioritizing that at, at the moment um, because of the costs involved and the opportunities for our growers um, who have only sort of in the illicit um, market grown outdoors. So that's where their expertise uh, lies for many of them. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, the, the signs are good um, that, that the, the chemical profiles are, uh, are going to be okay for extractions. Um, but, yeah, in terms of uh, other growing, I guess, yeah, the other thing is with pharmaceuticals is we've got to keep heavy metals and pesticides out of the final product. So um, biological controls is a big um, uh, yeah, imperative for, for our company and finding ways to control pests and disease fungi and mold that don't involve um, herbicides and pesticides and things is, is critical. And uh, there's many um, experts in those uh, regimes. And um, again, great to see the sort of organic principles, organic cultivation uh, being applied in pharmaceutical grade cannabis may not be quite as efficient, um, but the final product hopefully is um, safer and, and more likely to pass those uh, strict tests around contaminants, um, heavy metals, pesticides, um, uh, so yeah, that's um, sort of where we're at with some of that. That's, but yeah, I'm not an expert in, in lights. No, or as I said, I think that's again that's a that's a, a wealth of information for a lot of people who are getting into this. You might be thinking about setting up a company that again, just even the facet and the wide range of things that need to be maintained and to be kept mm. at their exact uh, right balance is is something that a lot of people should give heed to. This isn't something that's easy that you can just get into and think it's going to be just a walk in the park. This will be a uh, a higher intellectual capacity job that's going to require a lot of heartache and heartbreak along the way so yeah. be prepared for that anybody looking to get into the industry uh, yeah. i'm going to leave you there manu i'm not going to keep you longer for anybody who wants to know anything about manu's company you can see the email or the website there ruabio.com go check them out uh, i'd love to have you back on in a couple of months hopefully things have changed a little bit differently in new zealand yeah. and we're able to have a little celebratory joint over uh, <laughs> this conversation so 
I can't thank you enough again, Manu. Have a great evening, and thanks everybody for watching. We'll be back next week. Yeah.